the disequilibrium theory of price formation would be that. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, each lecture has its own preferences. Uh, I don't mind if you interrupt me with questions as we go, if it's pertaining to this discussion, but I understand there will be questions which will be on. I will try to set aside a 10 minute or maybe 15 minute period at the end of this lecture for questions outside of this topic, just for your information. So I'm not trying to ignore the questions which do not pertain directly to this one. Uh, yeah. You will have a chance. And if it's your time, so not, then we'll find time later on as we do. <coughs> now I'm waiting for a quick chart. Uh, in the meantime, I start with this thought that my interest in economics goes beyond the theory of interest. It goes to the very roots, the very beginnings of economics. And uh, my, I should declare who my hero is. My hero is Karl Menger, an Austrian uh, who was born in 
and uh, this whole uh, rather sad story you famous story. According to the official version, he committed suicide to his lover, who he was not allowed to marry because she was a whore was the more both the more aristocratic and very close to control. But anyhow, as a youth, he was personally tutored Rudolf, Count Prince Rudolf was tutored by Karl Menger, even to the extent of traveling incognito, in other words, without probably under assumed names. Traveling in Western Europe, including England, France, the periphery, and Carol uh, Manger was explaining the world as it was, or as he knows as he knew it to the young Grand Prince. And he left a deep impression, deep impression on him. And uh, uh, his basic outlook, Carl Menger's basic outlook was that of pessimism. And he was a visionary and he did realize, remember this was still in the 19th, late, the last few years of the 19th century, he uh, realized that Western civilization is doomed. And as he saw it, it was doomed because of its finances going to self-destruct. That was his basic outlook at the end. He imparted his lessons to his young uh, charge, the Count Prince. Because this relationship, tutor, uh, student lasted for at least 10 years, so there was lots of time. And according to some uh, historians, this also played a large part in the death of the Count. Whether he was a genuine suicide or he was helped is another question. We won't have to that. But he was also a pessimist. He was not looking forward to taking over as one of the then very few great powers, which Austria Hungary was at that time. Uh, great history, great uh, monarchy, uh, house, the house of Habsburgs going back. These eight hundred years, and uh, rather than looking forward to the chance of taking over the realm and putting his ideas into practice, he just shuddered the idea. It never came to be. Now, be that as it may, we must know, and we are not investigating this. The fact is that I 
explain this historical background, and I like the analogy between Karamander and Aristotle, and uh, I can read it to you and to others who wonder what happened. Karamander's Rudolf would have become a modern Alexander the Great. Probably the world would have looked a little different what it is. But we are not going to enter this. It's just a, a, a nice thought, speculative dream. Uh, we have to face reality. So my hero is modern Aristotle Karl Menger. One of the Oh yeah, that, that is important. I want to tell you before he became the tutor to become principal, you can imagine what kind of betting you would have to undergo if you were going to become the tutor, future emperor. So that is an interesting question how Manger, who was a commoner, he was not Aristotle. He was not an aristocrat or anybody of high birth. He was just an academic. <coughs> and in those days, the governments didn't run huge economic departments, research, and statistics, and all that. But there was a very small office attached to the office of the prime minister of Austria which was following the markets, looking at what happened in the various markets, <coughs> stock markets and other markets in those days. And through uh, <coughs> his academic advancement, Menger became the, to, today we call him the chief of that office attached to the Prime Minister's office. Uh, but it didn't mean a desk and an army of secretaries and what have you. It meant that you just had to go every day to the floor of the exchange and make observations that if something strange occurred to you, you should make a report and let the Prime Minister know. So uh, that was the kind of job he had <coughs> as a young uh, economist. He was present on the floor of the stock exchange and other markets every day and making observations. And the budding theorist came out. It was an applied job. It was not a theoretical job. But he was a born theorist, and the first thing he observed was that the whole outlook on the markets in economics, as it existed then, was just wrong, plain wrong. Because the markets were not working on the principle of equilibrium of supply and demand. On the contrary, he 
that Bartlett's were working on the principle this
And this is my starting point. This is a thesis of Karl Menger, who completely revolutionized economic thinking, building on the disequilibrium theory of Marcus. So, <clears throat> this, this has the following. Austrian economics adopted this, and this is pretty well worked out originally by Menger himself, and then by the followers of Menger. It's very well uh, known and discussed, and there are good books available where you can learn this. But what is not discussed, and what even Menger didn't live long enough to work out, was the flip side of the theory as applied to the rate of interest. And that was missed for, for very strange reasons. And that is something which I still find difficult to explain. Now, all the market analysts, the financial analysts, realize this, and you don't have to waste too many words for them to uh, explain. But they all realize that the rate of interest on the one hand and the bond price on the other are very rigidly related. And in fact, they are related what I prefer to call the seesaw effect. Remember the seesaw? This is the name of the, uh, the uh, what's the word? Not, uh, children's play. They get a, get a long uh, beam uh, with a fulcrum. It looks like a balance scale. And one chance is more than the other. So one chance is up, the other to go down. Refer to the seesaw, then I refer to the rate of interest. The bond price is one end of the seesaw, and the rate of interest is the other. And this is the rigid relationship between the two. Any financial analyst will immediately agree with you, and we won't have to worry about provoking But strangely enough, if you talk to academic economists, it's a blank there. It's, you're hitting a wall. They don't agree with that. They don't even agree that the, uh, that, uh, the uh, rigid relationship exists. Because they say, well, interest is one thing, and one price is another, and sometimes there might be influences on one which don't influence the other, and so on. So it's obfuscation, really rather than finding uh, the truth, you are making it even more confused. And this I, I don't quite understand. And I must say even the Austrians make that mistake. Mises himself, looking for Mises, is another hero of mine, but I came to acquire a reputation being a critique of Mises, and that's of course, I don't know because if you do, then it's 
this equilibrium period price formation, which is accepted by and large the economic, the profession of the economists, as applicable to the commodity markets, but not accepted when it comes to pure things. Too bad, but it gives us a chance to cut through that jungle, a jungle of misconceptions and misinterpretations and, and obfuscation and what have you. That is the approach. This is what I'm advocating. And since I'm condensing this a little bit, I just mentioned the highlights. Right? This reminds me of the story of the American billionaire in, in the old days when it was still a privilege to fly. It's no longer. Well, maybe again. <laughs> <laughs> He has made this millionaire, say in the early 30s or 20s or whatever, hired a plane and he wanted to see Europe, a grand tour of Europe. So there they were flying and, and the guide pointed out. You see that point there? That's Paris. That point, that's Venice. And there's Rome, not far from it, and so on. And then the millionaire said, skip the details, mention the highlights only. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm skipping the details and mentioning the highlights only. The first consequence of the duality of the past and mid price is that there will be arbitrage. Strangely, that's another word, arbitrage, French word, but it's, it's perfect legitimacy in the English language as well, but not in economics textbook. Because you have uh, textbooks or treatises, and you don't find arbitrage, or if you do, then it's just barely mentioned. It's treated in an offhand Mentioned. Far from being anyway. Now, I think arbitrage deserves more than just a highlight. It deserves going into details. Now, the second thing is that you have to look at the markets which trade futures. And this means you can sell commodities in the future market than buy commodities. But it's better to look at this as commitments to buy and commitment to sell. Because the first question people say and they throw their hands up, how can you sell something you don't own? Well, look at it as a commitment. You, you are not selling grain which you don't own, but you are selling a commitment that you will deliver grain at a definite price we, not, we are not entering that controversy, we just accept that there is some such a thing as buying and selling commitments. So there will be spreads between the 
if you have a commitment to buy, then you are long. If you have a commitment to sell, then you are short. It's a marked term, makes it simple to refer to these future transactions. And the point is this, and this is a point which is not recognized by mainstream economics. Most positions in the markets are not straight, long positions or short positions. The, the overwhelming majority of positions is what they call straddle position. And it's the word straddle comes from riding. You're riding a horse, you have a straddle. Left leg, right leg, but you don't call them left leg and right leg, you call them the short leg and the long leg. And you know what we mean by these terms. The short leg is your commitment to sell, and the long leg is your commitment to buy. And this is actually for the purpose of reducing the risks because these two markets in which you have the short leg or the long leg are related, sometimes very tenuous relationship, but the relationship exists all the same. And therefore, if you have a violent move in one market, this will be compensated for an off offsetting opposite move in the other. So you have reduced the risk of an outright long position or an outright short position. That is the correct way of looking at the markets. That you don't have so-called naked positions in a short or long. You have most of the time, most of the traders have a balanced position, which means have a spread, which a spread which has a short leg and a long leg. <coughs> a related word is, yeah, okay. So spreads and straddles are related words. Spread is the difference between prices. And straddle is a market position with two legs, short and long. Now, very often, the both, two, both legs are in the same market. And the spread is a straightforward difference between the ups and the price. But not always, because the long and short legs could be in uh, different markets which have some relationship to one another. An example which comes to mind is the so-called soybean complex in the, the Chicago border uh, trade, uh, which has several components, not just two, but there is the soybean itself, which is being traded by the bushel, and then the uh, uh, soybean oil, I think, and the soy meal, which is a, a father for animal. Now these are obviously related. It's, uh, they can go in opposite direction. One 
goes up, the other goes down, but only to a certain extent. It is very soon some fundamental uh, facts will put them back into adjustment. So that shows that not all spreads are in the same market, not all straddles are in the same market, they could be in different markets. So that was one of the highlights. Here is another. In addition to two-legged straddles, you can have four-legged straddles as well. And that refers to the most common type of arbitrage. Two, the two forward legs are in the futures market and the two hind legs in the cash market. So here you have short and long futures and short and long in the cash market. And that is a very common thing. All Grain elevators do that, feedlot operators do that, uh, Texas ranchmen do that, the famous of Texas straddle, <laughs> to putting on two long lines and going in a straddle, which is not. Well, that's what they do in Texas, <laughs> according to Alright, so there are the four legged straddles. And ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, there is such a thing as a one legged straddle as well. You may not agree with that immediately, but there is such a thing. And it's actually a very common thing. Have to think of the housewife who is doing shopping. And when she does, she looks at the price and the quality and whatever is promised in and so on and so forth. And then, of course, putting this information together, the housewife decides to shift custom from one brand to another. She is replacing one product with a very similar product at a different price, different quality, and so on. This is a one-legged straddle because what she's not buying is her short leg. And what she's buying is her long leg. Now, I'm not going to try to convince you any more than just putting the idea to you. You can think about that, and it's perhaps not even the housewife whose example is the most important. You have to think of a producer producing a certain type of food which is in great demand. And in the, on the input level, the producer is constantly looking around for substitutes. And if she finds a better product or a cheaper product, she tries to replace it so that her production cost could be lower. You may be uh, selling uh, the same or even a better price. 
So this is really very important and it brings the whole economic picture to life. It's no longer a snapshot, it's no longer a static picture. It becomes a moving, a moving picture and it will be not a black and white picture either. It will be a picture, a movie picture with living colors. If you want to do that, you have to replace rigid input, rigid output with ideas like four-legged struggle, 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 two-legged or one-legged. Now, whether it's two or four or one, there's no such thing as three-legged struggle. I'm glad to be four. So just stay in the three cases, one, two, and four. In bringing these in, you get away from a static view and you have a, a fully dynamic view of production, consumption, trade, and so on, which is the basis of economics. Throughout equilibrium theory, put in this equilibrium theory, and then you will realize that the market is dynamic and there is a way how theory can capture this dynamism and work it in and make it uh, mesh as well as the glove fits the hand if you work with these concepts, arbitrage, spread, struggle, and so on. By and large, you might say this is in manga, but when you try to apply these ideas to the bond market, which means try to apply these ideas to the theory of interest, that incomplete is as the old cartographists used to say, this part of the world we can't put on the map because it's a style in It's not that's where the cannibals live or whatever. So I am happy to report to you this is not the case. That are incognita if you ignore it, but instead of cognita if you want to know it. There's a way to know it, it is the proper approach bringing in arbitrators. And this is what you have to do if you want to develop a proper understanding of interest. So the bottom line of this discussion, and I realize I promised you 10 minutes for the discussion, so I'm trying to wind this down a little. Instead of explaining one monolithic market price, the economists have a job to explain two. It's not a good exchange. That's the way it is if you want to understand what's And that means you want to discuss the formation of the past, 
price separately and the formation of the bid price again quite separately. And don't allow the two to interfere because that's going to lead you astray. It's going to lead you back to the equilibrium theory so once you have a proper theory of how the asset price is formed by the market process and how the bid price is formed, then you have to have a theory to understand why the spread between these two prices has to close. Because there will be market makers who try to buy at the lower bid price and sell at the higher price. And this is an immediate profit for them. If they, uh, that's not as easy as it sounds. These market makers uh, have to be very smart and they have to understand what's happening in the larger picture. But in every market, have them. If you didn't have them, the market would phase out, it just wouldn't work. Equilibrium is only good to do. No, I'm saying it's more than you, but you don't uh, fall back to equilibrium again. The market making is in this festival. So what their job is to break the two prices as close enough together so there will be trading and the market will be liquid and there will be plenty of supply, plenty of demand and they will need and any kind of discrepancy will be adjusted uh, not through changing supply or demand but through uh, encouraging the ask of the price to move in the right direction. So it's 10 more minutes. Let's have a discussion. I promised you I'll take questions on any topic which has to do with my publication on the internet or anywhere else who have seen them. And uh, I ask my Chairman, to take questions from the uh, A clarification question first. Uh, you, I heard you correctly you said that the water uh, commons don't uh, even agree with the simple idea of the portfolio increase resulting in rising bond prices. You said they try and throw up dust uh, uh, to compensate. Uh, what sort of other elements do they say have uh, affect water? one already, which is looking for Mises. He has a very rigid theory, almost dogmatic, which says that interest is not a market phenomenon. Interest is, uh, is a, a moral imperative or something which uh, is given that every future good is apodictically, remember the catchword, the old catchword, apodictically 
valued at a lower level than exactly the same present And interest is an outcome of this basic fact, which is shifting the thing to, away from the market to philosophy. But I have lots of counterexamples. It's not always true that the market values future good at a lower level than exactly the same quantity and quality of good uh, present. And uh, I think it would take too much time to go into the details. But you know the English word dovetail? These markets, uh, markets are dovetail. And they have to, if you have production or consumption, you have various factors coming together. And if the timing is following the blueprint 100%, then there's no loss, and it will be true that, as Mises says, that the future value is going to be lower than the present value. However, in practice, there is always mishaps, and the delivery of the factors will not perfectly dominate. And when they don't, then there will be losses. And these losses could, in fact, result in the present value being the lower of the two as compared to the future. Why? Because these two important ingredients don't reach the destination at the right time, and then they, they'll be subject to losses. So let me just leave it at that. Now that was the big theoretical objection. But then the non-Austrians would say, oh, well, after all, the bond market it could be subject to uh, foreign exchange, deviation, or uh, capital movements, and so on. And then they talk, bring in a lot of um, irrelevant in, uh, in irrelevant considerations until they confused the main point, which is crystal clear, so badly that you don't see the uh, forest of the trees. And, and that is the, the uh, present situation. Yes, any meeting that the whole is trying to take one long position in the future. Would you speak up again? Yeah, uh, early you mentioned you had four-legged straddle, which had uh, a long position in futures and a long position in cash, and a short position in future market and a short position in cash market. What I wanted to ask was, how do you have a short position in the cash market? What's an example? Um, you just took a great four-legged straddle. Four-legged straddle. The cash market. How do you have a short position? Well, this means simultaneous buying and selling in the cash market. For example, you are operating a, an alligator, 
where at harvest time you fill your bins with various commodities. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, you hedge. So when you buy in the cash market, you sell in the future. You see? Now, when the time comes to cash in and sell the cash grain, then you have to lift your uh, short plan in the, in the future market. Yep. You see? So you simultaneously hedge when you buy the cash grain, and you simultaneously de-hedge when you uh, sell the cash grain. So the, the, the four lands actually do exist, and they are very distinct, and you can see that. Like it works uh, financial products versus in biology, so that it costs very well, 
that the, the, those products can, can give you good returns in the long run, survive the other products, the other uh, stuff doesn't. So um, if we go forward in time uh, with this uh, lecture, do we want the place that uh, you, you will die because it's not just uh, here to stay, but it's not energy. Let me just say that I am basically a mathematician. I was trained as a mathematics physics teacher in this country way back before the 1956 uh, revolution. So I'm totally familiar with this argument that mathematics and physics is a lot to add to the theory of bond price and so on. But I'm sorry to cut this train of thought short right there and then, because I don't think mathematics or physics has anything to contribute to the theory of physics whatsoever. For the following reason, I already touched on The reason is that I have to distinguish between two types of risks. And this is very rigid. It's black and white, and there are no colors and transitions or talking circles around. There are risks given by nature. We can do nothing about it. We don't know what the weather will be tomorrow. We don't know what the gold price will be tomorrow. If we did, we wouldn't be sitting here. If we knew what the gold price was going to be tomorrow, we would just run out and buy ourselves. And make a living that well, nobody sees the future. So for that reason, there are such things as risks existing in nature. And then there are risks which are man-made, artificially. Some admit openly that we have a casino, and the casino creates risks. And somebody came to me, who was it during one of these breaks, suggesting that Okay, your name? John. Okay, wonderful remark. Could you repeat it? Basically, my comment was that if they were to admit that it was really gambling, they would also have to admit that the house always wins. <laughs> so, as simple as that. But the fact is that there is no way to talk you out of this. Thing. Whether you admit it or not, the risks are not nature-given. The risks are man-made. Of course, governments don't want you to see this, and therefore they encourage, pump a lot of money into departments of economics to build up huge research uh, staff and so on to prove that speculation, yes, can control the bond price or interest rates or this or that. For even foreign exchange rates. This is a lie, it's a lie, and a hundred times it's a lie. The fact is that these risks are not nature given, they are man made. Why? Because under the gold standard, foreign exchange rates, interest rates, and a whole lot of other things are fairly constant, lacking volatility to the extent that you don't have to have laws outlawing speculation. 
the speculators will just examine themselves. There's not enough. They size up the situation. There's not enough volatility in this market because my only interest in this is profits, and there's no volatility, no profit, period. That's it. So the risk is man-made, whether the government admits it or not. And for that reason, all this paraphernalia from physics, mathematics, chemistry, whatever you want to bring it in, is inapplicable. You, there's no way to predict how the human brain will operate. There are values and values. And, and these are not governed by physical. They are influenced by physical factors, but not governed. Yeah, if it's nature-made, uh, you cannot do it. If it's man-made, you can't do it consistently. That's a very good point. I appreciate you brought the talk. And, 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 but that's a huge field. You know, it's philosophy. Okay, yeah. It's philosophy. I just wanted to jump over there. A huge field. It's very close to my heart. Why, why this 
why does it speak would stop an exchange? Because isn't the ask price of the buyer willing to pay a high price and the bid price of the seller willing to pay the seller below price? It's just a matter of negotiating what price trading happened and both benefit. Uh, I think that would be easy to do. The ask price of the buyer is the seller. Because obviously, if they're part, then they the seller switches around. That's an iron support of economics, is that through the exchange both parties benefit. Are you bringing the basis here? No, 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 I'm not bringing the basis. Just the ask prices and buy it. No. I would say that is the other way around. Right? If you just the other way around, then the exchange would never happen until the closure is complete. Ninety uh, percent of participants have to buy at a higher price mm -hmm. and have to, have to buy and to sell at the lower bid price. But there is ten percent of market makers who make it their business trying to buy at the lower bid price and sell at the asset. They are on the floor. They are the first ones. And they are the best informed participants. And that's as they act. And that's how they make their bread and butter. That's how they make their profit. But if you read Jesus and, and Menger, isn't it where the difference is such that the benefit of the exchange is that the horse is worth, um, to the one selling the horse, it's worth um, a lesser amount than what it is to the buyers. He's bringing it back to Manger's and Mises' theory of interest on uh, what? Oh, the pricing. On pricing, just on pricing. I'm saying exchange happens because of the disequilibrium, because it is worth more to the other party than. What market are you talking about? Say, say the horses. Say the price of the horse. Horses. Say, say the price of the horse. Okay. And an exchange will happen because. The buyer values the horse more than the seller values the horse. <coughs> the net spread of the ask price is, is the price of the buyer and the bid price is the seller. Well, if the, the yeah. sellers and horses don't adjust their ask price, then they won't be able to sell. And if the buyer don't adjust their bid price, they won't be able to buy. Most of the transactions, it's a mistake to think that all transactions take place either at the outside or at the north. Most transactions take place somewhere in between. These are extremes. And there is a lot of variation. So the, the actual <coughs> which trade exchanges take place are somewhere in between and they are they are changing con continuously. What lends stability to the market is these extremes. They also change, but at a different level. They change because the sellers or the buyers adjust, they realize that they're asked and depressed not to be listed, they make adjustments. And then the arbitrators enter, and at one point, 
there will be liquidity and trading possible. I've written a lot, lot more on this, and it's an existing print. And as I say, we are just skipping the details. <laughs> <laughs> Consistence in the other light is the ceiling and the floor concept. For example, the interest rate. But it doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's a part. In the sense, even if that's why, it just represents the ceiling and the floor within which transactions do take place. So I couldn't understand why a wide space stops a transaction taking place. Well, it's just if, if, if uh, too high. Yeah, it's sometimes an extreme. I think. I think He's saying, why would an extreme high, extreme low stop the, the process from equal or mean just because it's, it's a, a large spread? Well, maybe it won't stop it, but the change is so, so sporadic as becoming insignificant. I mean, you know that you can sometimes pick up a real estate at an extremely good price. You were lucky. Or sad at an extreme. You were lucky. But you can't make a theory out of being uh, lucky. So uh, let's not be rigid about this. Uh, why the exchange will thin out trade? And it will thin, out, thin, thin trade out drastically. So that for practical purposes, you might say the market has frozen up. There's no more trade. They, they have to do something. Buyers and sellers have to do something. They, they won't be able to adjust supply and demand because they exist already and they are not so easy to influence in the short term. But what they can change is their ask and their price and they do change it. And as they do, then they do bring back liquidity Confusing these because as I understood from many, it's just that I think being the opposite sides, you obviously see it as, as in the market asking the goods price, whereas also you're coming to a market, it's the other way around for the exchange. But I mean, but as I say, uh, if you're interested in this, I appreciate that, I welcome this, and there's a lot more I've written on this, which uh, okay. I can give you the reference to it. Most of it is on the internet. You are familiar with my website? Okay, so you know, there's a lot there. Uh, unfortunately, it's not very well organized in the sense that I don't have an index that you just say, bid price, ask price, and you, because you, you just have to be a little bit familiar with what I have written, and then you find bits and pieces here and there. I wish I had time to bring a little index. <laughs> Maybe now I can find that thanks to the spot If you trade stocks, you'll have business. No, no, that I think there's an idea that I was talking of the of the theory of man. Oh. Because because they debate an exchange because the seller and the more to the buyer than to the seller. It's the opposite way around. When is the due? Will the price lunch due? Uh, lunch is at 1. At 1? At 1. Okay. And uh, in 